0: And you say, what's mine? And somebody else says, well, what is? And you say, oh, my God, am I here all alone? But something is happening and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr.
1: Jones? So, hi, this is Mike McGinn, and welcome to You Me Us Now, which is a podcast about people who try to create change, who they are, how they got involved, and what they're trying to work on. My story is I was an environmental and neighborhood activist who just got more and more engaged and in the political process and working on ballot measures. And one day I decided to run for mayor. I won. Um I met all sorts of amazing people over the course of my political advocacy. And uh, one day I wasn't mayor anymore, but I wanted to bring you those stories. I wanted to bring you the stories of people who tried to to change things. And I started off with one of my favorite Dylan songs, Ballad of a Thin Man. Uh, there's a few words there. Look, when you're mayor, sometimes it just gets really surreal, right? It's like it's pressure packed and people are telling you that black is white and up is down and the sky isn't really blue and Something's going on and you just don't know what it is and you wonder if you're all alone. And there was one person who was always there, who always knew which direction was up and who I was always an ally of mine in the work I did both before and during mayor. And that's my guest today. It's it's Chuck Ayers. And in the world of uh, up is down and black is white and the sky isn't really blue, you know, some of the craziest discussion actually comes in around Biking and bicycle safety, and that's how I met Chuck. Is that he was the head of the Cascade Bicycle Club, and was working to make our community safer for bicycling. Really, really controversial. Now, I'll just give you a brief introduction of Chuck. He he grew up in New England. He he called himself a Swamp Yankee, which was you know a rural uh, Connecticut kid. Grew up on a farm. Somehow or another, uh, due to baseball, he got himself out to Purdue and and started seeing more of the country, went back to Boston, ended up in Evergreen, ended up working on nuclear activism, held a series of odd jobs, worked on a bottle bill uh, as an organizer, worked for SEIU, went back and got his master's in social work and got advanced degree. And one day that led him to uh, the bike club, where he was a hell of an advocate, um, really working to change the political system. So today um, I'm going to introduce you to Chuck. And what I want to cover with Chuck or just what he's learned. What are lessons for advocates? If you're, if you're trying to go in on a controversial topic, no matter what it is, what do you need to know about trying to change things? And how do you deal with the controversy that comes up around stuff? So Chuck, Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How was that intro? Did I? That was what? Great, great. <laughs> it's, a, it's
0: a long resume. You skipped right through it. it was perfect.
1: Well, I seem to recall you told me that before the age of thirty, you never held a job for longer than a year.
0: Uh, that's right. And um, that type of resume doesn't necessarily work out well for everybody. But for me, it was uh, perfect to be able to try lots
1: of different things. So that bike club job might have been the job you held for the longest in your life. Oh, huh? by far, by far. Yeah, but uh, as I recall, it was kind of touch and go, hanging on to it. Thank you very much for remembering that. <laughs> well, I as somebody who, you know, kind of had a touch and go experience holding on to my job, um, you know, I think i I think I'm qualified to raise the topic You with are, you. No doubt. You are, yeah. And what I was referring to was Chuck was such a, you know, strong advocate that there actually was a backlash against his leadership at the club, not from biking advocates, but from those who thought those that who thought he was just pushing too hard.
0: Right. Internally, uh members of the club, as well as uh, some board members. Um, We really tried to professionalize our advocacy and make it uh, powerful and proactive rather than reactive. And that takes uh, really assessing what your power is, where it comes from. Well,
1: let's start there. Let's start there, because that's one of the questions I wanted to get at with you. I remember when I was starting a nonprofit and working to get it going, we had a conversation one day, and, and I've taken the words you gave me, and I've used them since then, And the question is, where does power come from? Well, it's a great question. I think every organization needs to analyze it. I think there are those who
0: do a great job of understanding it. Um, It comes from many different places. It can come from money. It can come from words. It can come from activists, the vote. It can come from uh, people who can just open a door with a phone call because they're networked and connected. The the real issue is uh, organizations understanding where their power comes from, and being able to activate their power to uh,
1: achieve their mission. So let's talk about some examples. From the Cascade Bike Club, where did their power come
0: from? Yeah, our power um, came from uh, the power of the vote and activists, uh, cyclists and people who wanted to bike, to be able to bike, um, being willing to turn out to events, uh, whether it was a, a bike protest on Stone Way where hundreds of people just ride their bikes or come to public meetings to voice their their concerns about safety and biking. It really was a grassroots uh, movement
1: that then we turned into uh, the power of the ballot. And so, tell me, what do you mean when you say turned? Agru- turned well, first, let's uh, elevate the grassroots movement. Um, what made it a grassroots movement? Why were people passionate about it and why did they get engaged? Well, I think almost
0: every movement has passionate people that's what makes it a movement and they're willing to stand up for whatever it is they're involved in the content of that movement for us it was bicycling so people who are really passionate about biking wanted to be able to bike safely and to bike in more places so at cascade we had the folks who just wanted to go out and ride and didn't want to do advocacy they just wanted to ride and we needed to convince them that in order to be safer riding And to have more people riding with them, we needed to be more proactive in our politics. And so for them, it was just go out and ride. That's great. We need you out there riding. For others who wanted to commute more and have safer places to ride and weren't as comfortable just riding, they needed to be involved in changing the culture of our politics so that we could change the culture
1: of our infrastructure. Okay. There's a lot there. So passionate people, what was the culture of politics that needed changing? Well... In the city of Seattle,
0: we needed more city council members who were going to not only have the vision of uh, p- more people biking, but being willing to do a bike master plan so we knew where we were going and then to put money into uh, that those facilities to build them out. Uh, when I first came on board, we really didn't have a lot of connections with the city council. We didn't know them. We weren't on their radar, um, it, and we had to change all of that. How did you change that? Uh, By the power of the ballot, we found people who were running for office who were uh, agreed with our agenda, and we helped get them elected.
1: How do you help people get elected? So you've got a membership organization, you've got people who want to do it. I mean, just really, LUTs and bolts. What are the things you do to help somebody get elected?
0: So um, first and foremost, you assess the candidates who are in the race. You uh, rate them. You tell the public who are most—what candidates are most favorable towards your position— And then if you can, you get volunteers out to help on their campaigns, um, whether it's phone banking, literature drops, uh, introducing them at events that you might have, just giving them exposure. And then if you can, depending on the designation of your organization, if you can give them money for their campaigns. And that's where a lot of power comes from is like it or not, like it or not, candidates need money to run. And if they're getting money from uh, a certain individual organization, they're much more likely to help them out in the future.
1: Right now, the Cascade Bike Club is actually debating whether or not to get out of electoral politics and not endorse candidates anymore, to simplify their tax status with the IRS. And I kind of have a feeling, I won't ask you the question, I think I already heard the answer. You'd say you need that. You need that direct electoral advocacy to move things.
0: I would say Cascade needs it. I would say not everybody needs it because, remember, other organizations' power emanates from other places, right? So they can give candidates money or do do other open doors and just talk to people, and they don't necessarily have to move the uh, electoral process. Cascades power emanates from being able to get lots of people to vote for particular candidates. And I think giving up that for whatever reason, and all I can do is make assumptions about their real reasons versus what's put out in the paper. And we all know that they're not always congruent. I would say it's a bad move. I think it really weakens the ability of the club to move its agenda, which is an agenda for safety for people who travel our roads. It's not just about biking. It's about safety for everybody.
1: So probably the reason you and I are friends is because we There're probably many reasons. One of which is we're we're both about the same age and about the same everything else, and we even like the same music. I nixed your Dylan tune at the end, but yeah, we got thanks. a Phil Oaks song coming up. Thank you. Right, but <laughs> but we also both believe I had the Dylan tune. Um, we both also believe in in the power of organizing as a source of power. You know, so one of the things that I did when I was you know, I went to law school because I wanted to get accredited as a lawyer and use legal expertise to help move the debate. And that's a source of power. That's another source of power. Absolutely. Right, Hold people accountable to the laws that have already been passed. Right. Um, but what I found was that I had a lot – that when I looked at that, there was something about the legal system in which if the political culture, if the public culture, if the culture of the society wasn't in the right place, the judges were very comfortable kind of interpreting the rules in a way – that fit with public expectations. Absolutely. Rather than perhaps okay. different approach. And I, I became much more firmly of the belief that you needed to change public opinion and you needed to have that public opinion there to support, you know, any laws that would be adopted or passed. So I I started volunteering with the Sierra Club and, and really became a believer in the power of political organizing. I even, you know, educating the public is is a piece of the puzzle, but ultimately you've got to identify who's good who's bad, who's only just giving you rhetoric, and who's who's doing the right thing when push comes to shove. So what do you do when push comes to shove? Somebody's told you all the right stuff and they haven't done the right thing. What do you do then, Chuck, as an advocate?
0: Well, I think you have to educate your people if you have people or try to find like-minded people to educate others about your belief and what's right and what's wrong and let them know that the person who isn't necessarily on your side isn't, and you need to mobilize against them. Can you give me an example of a time you did that as an advocate? Well, I'll use a, a couple of systems. So I used to work for the uh, Seattle Light Brigade, became Washington Fair Share, a progressive organization. We were working in low-income uh, neighborhoods in Seattle, and we had a big uh, no-shut-off campaign against Seattle City Light. There's a federal law about when you can and can't shut electricity and heat off in people's houses when the temperature drops below a certain degree over averages, et cetera. And Seattle tended not to drop below that, and so Seattle City Light would shut people's uh, so if they didn't pay a off. bill? Wouldn't pay a bill, so they'd get their electricity shut off. And of course, it gets really cold here, even though it may not be 30 degrees or whatever the temperature. Um, you, that was that, legally. That, that legally, right. Yeah, right. We uh, set up a meeting with uh, Seattle City Light officials, and we went down there with about 50 people, and they probably expected us to show up with three or four, and they basically locked the elevators and wouldn't let us in. And they said, well, you could have some representatives come and talk to us. And we said, well, that's pretty disempowering of the people who came to hear what you have to say about being shut off. They did not agree to meet with us. So we marched on the mayor's office, uh, mayor, <laughs> mayor Rice at the time, and uh, we occupied the mayor's office. He, we were told, slipped out the back door and we had to deal with the deputy mayor and we Got a meeting together. How how
1: long were you in the mayor's office?
0: You know, it was probably about a half an hour before they said we really need to get rid of these people. And uh, how did they they get rid of you? They agreed to have a meeting with us, a public hearing, basically. And at that hearing, let's say it was a month later. It's been a long time now. Right. um, We turned out about two hundred pretty angry people who knew people who uh, electricity was shut off, so their heat was shut off. A couple of senior citizens had died, um, froze to death. So it. It it was a fun time for us. It certainly was in the realm of experience of our people to be agitated about this. And it was
1: totally outside the experience of uh, SPU. So, wow, we had like a phrase there. You use the phrase inside and outside the realm of your experience. Right. What do you mean by that? So
0: I think that's a really important thing about organizing is you never want to make the people who are on your side of an issue uncomfortable and go outside their experience. Have them do something that they don't feel that comfortable with. I think that, that part of politics is doing it scared, but you can't go so far that people aren't willing to do it and aren't so, comfortable with So give me an example
1: it. of doing things within the realm of your experience. Well,
0: for many people, it's about voting and working on campaigns. For some, it's not. That's outside their experience, but you want to bring them into that fold. But if people are very anti that, that process, it's really hard to get them Engaged. Outside the experience is uh, going and occupying the mayor's office. People don't feel comfortable with that. even though we had 50 people, if there aren't enough people that feel
1: comfortable with it, the other folks aren't going to follow you. So, because, understand, so the lesson here is understand what your own people are comfortable doing absolutely. and build tactics on, the, on, their, on, on but, their experience. Right. right. But then i like the other thing you said was really interesting. Go outside the experience of your opponent. Right. Because then it
0: forces them to react generally in ways that they're not used to and it uh, keeps them off balance. And, and that's a key strategy for for organizing, particularly citizen action organizing.
1: So the example you used was occupying the mayor's
0: office. Right. Probably hadn't been done in a long time and probably not with Mayor Rice, who is a nice guy and doesn't expect uh, a mixture of uh, people of color to show up at his office protesting.
1: You know, this is now the second show where I've gotten to say this. Nobody ever occupied my office. And I'm just, I I don't know (laughs) quite what happened. And I'm I'm really kind of grateful. And I- Maybe maybe you weren't pushing the agenda enough. Well, or I, you know, well- Actually, I, I guess you could say that the Chamber of Commerce did come in and reoccupy the office.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there may be that.
1: <laughs> they, they probably and, thought it was occupied yeah, for four years. Yeah. Is probably how they were viewing it. Yeah. Right, right. There is that. You know, and the other, the other phrase that you, you, I recall you using once that I thought was a pretty interesting phase was. That campaigns oftentimes, it's not about the initial ask or the reaction to the ask. It's about the reaction to the reaction. Right. So, we, you, I think you just described one example. Right. But describe reaction so, to the reaction.
0: So, you want to accomplish something and you lay out a strategy. Think of a football game. Think of military movements. You lay out your strategy. You're not quite sure what the opposition is going to do. And when they respond to what you do... What you do after that is probably the most important step you can take. And it might not be on your playlist, right? So you, let's use a sports example, Russell Wilson, right? He's got a play called, not the last one that we think of, yes, but he right? has a play call. It's a pass, doesn't see anybody, starts to scramble, doesn't see anybody, and he takes off running. He is thinking, what's my reaction to what they're doing? The initial thing that I'm supposed to do is pass this ball. Yeah. I can't do that. Because they're reacting- So you know, his, his reaction is to their run. reaction. Right, and yeah. then, then they all run after him, and sometimes he passes the ball still, yeah, right? And yeah. so it's it's thinking quickly of what is our reaction. And you don't, on the football field, as quickly, in politics, in, in power play, you, sometimes you get to go back to your office and think about, okay, what do we do next? You know, yeah, what's what's some, the press release?
1: What's, what, yeah. But you have to move quickly enough. But you have to move quickly enough to keep the issue alive. So any recent- uh, can you think of another example from organizing? You gave us one reaction to the reaction. They didn't give you a meeting, so you occupied the mayor's office. Right. Any right. other examples come to mind?
0: Well, you know, we tried to do it on the at the bike club on the Burke-Gilman Trail, you know, doing actions down there. Um the reaction was uh, the lawsuit, so we tried to occupy a little bit, but th- that didn't work because we didn't have the power. of the, Well, we don't know the legal basis of that yet. Right. Um, some reactions actions take longer. I think of one of the first campaigns we did was on East Lake Sammamish Trail. The county owned the trail corridor. Uh, Issaquah in um, Redmond were on board to turn it into a trail, but Sammamish wasn't. And they blocked it, blocked it, blocked it. And we couldn't get through any process with them and sitting down talking. So our reaction to that was get rid of them. And we uh, turned
1: that city council over and uh, got the trail built. How did you turn the city council over? You say Electoral you got Electoral politics. Them. So how long a campaign was that?
0: Well, I think it probably was maybe nine months or so. Could have been a, 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 the initial, but to fully turn it over probably took a couple of years because you have incumbents serving out their terms, finding people right. to run against them, um, and then running whole electoral campaigns that take
1: sometimes years I'll give you an example that's newsworthy right now is the port of Seattle recently gave their staff permission to enter into a lease that would allow Shell's Arctic oil drilling fleet to uh, stay there right and the the activists said don't approve this. The port commissioners essentially approved it and so now the question is what's the reaction to the reaction what is the what happens next right. so we saw a part of it yesterday which was several you know a couple of hundred people at a port commission hearing yelling and, that's and, not that's not fair we a couple hundred people at a port commission making their views really well known to the commissioners that it was a bad idea but you may find your i think we're going to find ourselves at a point where the port commissioners may not change their votes i think that's probably true unless some um other power play gets
0: put on the agenda. So you have the city council coming out, the mayor's starting to talk about it. Right. As we talked a little bit, what's the legislature going to do to react to it? Maybe what the governor's going to do. They may not want to play in the game at all because it's not my, as they say, not my dog, not my turf, right. not going to do it. But we know that Inslee's all about climate change and the environment. Should
1: he jump in? Is it well, politically risky? We, I, don't, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, to me, I think it's pretty clear. If you're for climate change, or excuse me, if you're against climate change, (laughs) if you're for leaving the oil in the ground, what all of the scientists tell us is that the oil in the Arctic is not burnable if we want to preserve the planet. So I would think that if you're a legislator from Seattle or a governor who cares about climate change, you should figure out what your leverage is on the port right now and use it. So that's the challenge then for the activists. How do they get the legislature and the governor to enter the fray. Right. Well, you
0: have to give them political cover to do so. right? Because logic doesn't always play out in politics if you're trying to secure your job. right? So you have to give those who come down on your side the political cover to be bold. Um, or they have to be bold and say, look, this is more important than my job. And not to harken back to Cascade, but there were several times when that's <laughs> what I did. It said, "A mission and what we're doing is more important than my job, and if I go so be it, but I need to move this agenda. And I, yeah. that I, I think you're right. If that's a, if climate change is a key issue for you,
1: you should weigh in on it. Right, right. Well, that's I think the level of accountability. And I think that's the other thing that I think is very hard in politics. I have um, I I talk to folks about this when they ask me about getting involved in politics, and and I seem to recall that you did this to me uh, more than once. But it happens. Is the accountability. It's really easy You're to- You're not still mad at the Wall Street
0: Journal? No, like, I'm not still you? mad. Okay. I'm not still mad at that.
1: But that's good. But I was thinking about it. Um, I'm not at all mad about it. Um, the The point is that it's really easy to praise your friends, positive accountability. It's It's actually even easy to praise your enemies when they do the right thing once in a while, right? Hey, if you do the right thing more often, you can expect this positive stuff from us. It turns out that it's actually harder than you think to criticize your enemies unless they're you know really completely retrograde you still have a hope that they might do something for you once in a while so you're hesitant to criticize even your enemies that's right and i think that that is a hard thing in politics to do is to get vocally and critical and then the hardest thing of all to do is to criticize your friends people who have been on your side but are now doing the wrong thing and, and I think that's um, – when I think about politics, I think the bike club was prepared to do that. And it's always been one of my philosophies of, of an advocacy that if you can't criticize your friends, then you, you really don't – deserve to be an advocate at the end of the day.
0: It's hard, and, and, and how do you criticize? How publicly do you criticize? You know, is it a private conversation? Is it in the press? I think it really depends on issue, how good a friend you are, how much they're backsliding on your particular issues. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, the last time Tom Rasmussen was running, and like Tom or not, I have a great relationship with Tom, but the last time he was running, I had a lot of people asking me to run against him because they really felt like he was backsliding on safety issues, road issues, bike issues in particular, and that he would get cold feet when he went out to community hearings and hear hear the, negative, ne- feedback hear from the negative feedback. So I met with Tom and I said, and he wanted my endorsement and the club's endorsement. I said, well, the reality is, Tom, people are asking me to run against you. They're really kind of tired. And you know. so I've been kind of meeting with some people and I said, I'm not going to do it, but you need to hear this. And I think from that conversation, at least from my perspective, he got more right, if you will, on the issues. You
1: also did a very public criticism of him. And early in our <laughs> administration, we proposed to take Nickerson Street, which is a two-lane each-way arterial, which had real pedestrian safety issues, and proposed to do something called a road diet, right. which is one lane each way, a center turn lane, and bike lanes on either side. And I'll I'll tell the story, and uh, it turned out to be really controversial. It was one of the very first road diets I did when I took office, um, really called for for safety reasons. And Councilmember Rasmussen heard from the community who thought it would you know make it too hard to drive, and said that the project was giving him indigestion. Correct. So here I'll let you finish the story. What would you do next? Well,
0: and so. It wasn't my idea, so I'm not going to take credit, but did come out of Cascade and our advocacy director that we started a campaign called Tums for Tom. And uh, it was one of the more fun campaigns that we did. That's another thing about organizing that we didn't really talk about is have fun. Yeah, I know. It should should be fun. (laughs) I know. We're we're both so damn earnest. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. And so there was this campaign to get people to send Tums to Tom. And when he came out to public meetings to hand him Tums, and we did this whole campaign of, of Tums for Tom. And- it was fun and I, we got our point across. And I think Tom took it, you know, I, I think he, he enjoyed it at, at one level because it was creative and fun. But of course, uh, it was, he, was he, being, was, he was a target.
1: Right, right. And, and at the time, you wouldn't necessarily say, would you have characterized Tom as an enemy of biking at that point? No. No, but he wasn't. I have. But he but, was a friend who wasn't standing up for what he said he believed that's in. That's right.
0: That's right. So, exactly holding your friends accountable. Yeah, And that, that was a public one that we felt we had to go public with it. I believe Tom at the time was chair of the Transportation Committee, so he had to be one of our biggest allies
1: or, uh, or not. And that was important to us. So it was funny. Um, so the council, it was within my authority as the mayor overseeing the Department of Transportation to direct them to make those changes, which they were ready to do. They had recommended to me that we make those changes. It would have taken a separate action from the city council to overturn it. So they never did, in fact, take any action. Would have been nice to have a few more of them speak up that it was a good idea, you know, at the time. And that's another topic I kind of want to get into. What, what's up with the whole war on cars, Chuck? When we're talking about safety of people, one would think that the safety argument should trump the mobility argument. And let me make it really simple. How many people should die to make it easier for us to get around? Right. And and people would say that that's probably a very inflammatory question. But one of the things I learned as mayor was that that's actually a question we're answering every day. What level of risk is acceptable in order to make it easier for people to drive?
0: Well, what's interesting about that is, if I might, uh, the new mayor... Mayor uh-huh. Murray has really taken the McGinn agenda and run with it. That road safety program, I remember being involved with, with community hearings and going out and being a facilitator at table talking about how are we making our roads safer. And and, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think current mayor is running with your agenda. Right. I'm right. not sure he would admit that, and there probably are some <laughs> tweaks, but what we care about is moving the right agenda. Right.
1: Don't right. really care who's moving it. No, it's it's so. far better that he embraced the goal of zero traffic dance that we announced a few years right. earlier than reject it. Right. Absolutely. And, and so the war on cars, I
0: think, was really more a, a jab at Mayor McGinn and, and poking him in the eye. And how can we term this? So that that's part of the power too. As you talk about, you know. The, the, Communication. You know, so here's the Seattle Times and others picking up on this war on cars. McGinn is good, bad. He's trying to get us all out of our cars. And all we're talking about is we want to make people safe and give them options to move around. And really, the, 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 the brand on that should have been move to make roads safe for everybody. Right. But it right. gets branded war on cars and we have to deal with that. And so, you know, the reaction to that and how we had to re-label that and, and the branding
1: that we had to do around that um, really yeah, well, sucked
0: up a lot of time and energy.
1: It it did, and that was their rea- <laughs> that was their reaction to our actions. Yeah, and, and how did we react to that? And frankly, it took us a little while to get get our legs under us and start demonstrating that there was public support. Get people out to town hall meetings, which you guys meet with editorial boards the whole. Work. Right, impress upon people that it's not just about. You know, people in spandex making your drive harder. It's actually about right. trying to, that there are already people doing it and let's make it safe for them.
0: Well, in fact, that's probably one of the good outcomes of our reaction was that we were really trying to get the general public to ride. And one way to do that was to ask bicyclists, not just people who like riding their bikes, but people who bike all the time and consider themselves b- bicyclists, right. to ride without Lycra. So that, <laughs> so that people driving by them or walking by yeah. them would say, yeah. hey, I can do that. That's just a person on
1: a bicycle. Chuck, but, I can I can confirm for you that my body is a spandex-free zone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go there, but I appreciate that. (laughs) I have been doing my part to No, it's actually, it's always kind of fun. Every once in a while, I'd go to a meeting on a bike and, you know, wearing a shirt and tie and a jacket if it was a short enough one. And I always felt like I was an ambassador for biking as a normal activity, not as a special activity.
0: I will say that, that if there was a positive outcome of that labeling of war on cars, That was one of them, that we really took an introspective look at who we are and who we want to be, and we wanted to be everybody biking. And we said, how do we get there? We need to get what I'll call the indicator species biking, women who have a better Mm -hmm. sense of self-preservation than men, and families. And how are you going to do that? You're not going to get it by having what I call pleasantly um owls old white guys in lycra riding <laughs> and that's kind of what cascade was when i came in i was one of those and i rode in lycra and, and people saw us in lycra and all colors and then they saw lance armstrong and we needed to change that narrative and for all i hated the war on cars narrative it changed us and our reaction to their reaction right. to get the right message
1: well and this is one of the things too is uh We've spoken about this, too, that it's not just about we talked about how that honed our message, but it also honed organizing because, you know, that one of the things I did was town halls. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of them. Lots of them. And I would just take questions for the public. And I think actually so here. We'll give a little picture behind the scenes of how advocacy works. Let's see if we can tell this story succinctly. I was concerned that I was out there fighting for the right thing. And the bike club was concerned. I think it's fair to say that we that we were, as far as they were concerned, we weren't going far enough and fast enough. So Chuck and I ended up having a heart to heart. And I remember, I think some of the words that came out of my mouth in those meetings were: um, "They were private meetings.
0: You don't have to say." No, no, I'm going to say it. I, let's let's <laughs> let's pull
1: apart the veil a little bit, right? Let's pull apart the veil a little bit. Pull, you know, pull it aside. Let's see behind the scenes. How does it work? And my reaction was, Chuck. I am in front of crowds of angry people who are yelling at me about a bike lane that's going to make it safer for people. And I'm not hearing the bikers show up. And you're telling me I'm not going far enough? Get your people out there to get yelled at too, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, sat in my office and got our people
0: out there to get yelled at. It was perfect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it, it was, uh, and and that was that was the frustration of the of the moment, absolute, right? Yep. It was a, it well was a, noted. No, it when it was a yep. deep frustration, I think on all sides, and I think that's probably another lesson for advocates that when you're in the thick of the fight, it's really hard to to. To lose sight of the big picture and to lose the ability to try to sort your way out to the other end.
0: Well, and the flip side of that is your allies have to continually be there. So it's not enough to get Mayor McGinn elected mayor or somebody else elected or to whatever it happens to be. You have to continually be there because the battle's not over.
1: No, it's far from over. It's
0: far from over. and, And I think you were right to call us out on that 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 we weren't there and um I, I hope we redoubled our efforts oh no but it was it was great. important to have that conversation
1: so, so that's something then I I would as long as we're talking about biking it's really interesting because one of the th- lessons I learned as as mayor was, that people are really and deeply and rightly and appropriately suspicious of government. And I say that from both being an advocate on the outside and being in the inside. Mm-hmm. They're, yes, if you're suspicious of government, you have every reason to be. And if you're angry at them, you have every reason to be. Please note that Chuck is nodding. Yes, Chuck <laughs> is nodding. Right. Which means that oftentimes government is your worst messenger. And I'll give you an example, a, a little story about this. 125th Street was a two-lane each-way arterial, a hilly arterial that was one of the least safe streets in the city, both for drivers, pedestrians, and others. And we proposed there a road diet as well. And it was perceived as the city is forcing something down your throats. And I had lots of angry people at meetings there. But I felt like I had to do it because, you know, public safety, right? I didn't want it on my conscience that somebody died on this unsafe street because I couldn't do the right thing. But of course, they all thought it was just the mayor's putting in bike lanes wherever he wants because, you know, he rides a bike and I guess he wants to ride on 125th. Interestingly enough, a few months later, there was a coffee shop up there in which the coffee shop owner didn't get a bike rack from the city, built her own bike rack, put it on the sidewalk and the bike rack blocked the sidewalk and she got a ticket from the city. Okay. (laughs) And this is now all over the local blocks. And I called in our city traffic engineer, our new guy, Dong Ho, and said, Dong Ho, why can't you just take away a parking spot and put the bike rack in the parking spot? Okay, so the sidewalk's wide, and this woman's special artistically constructed bike rack for her business can have a home in Lake City. And Dong Ho was, don't worry, mayor, I've already done it, and she's for it. The point of this story is, if we had shown up to Lake City as the government at that time, and said, we want to remove a parking space to put in a bike rack, and you'll really love it, I would have gotten a similar reaction from the business community that I got to 125th. Right. When a local business owner said, this is something that makes my business better, it's different. And when I was in a town hall meeting with people accusing me of imposing something upon them, I was in trouble. But when an, one of their neighbors would stand up and say, I'm your neighbor, and I want to be safe on the street, and I think it's a good idea, now neighbors have to talk to neighbors about how to use their streets right. rather than yell at government about not understanding their problems right.
0: well this is a com- part of the conversation that you and i had during that time was who's the right messenger and is the mayor no longer the right messenger to go out there because <laughs> he's like, been labeled as various things including oh, yeah. and, you know this, Demonized. this wacko bike guy yeah yeah you know the medium is the message and the medium is your neighbors way different than a, a yeah.
1: city uh, politician coming out um that was the other thing i learned once you become a politician you're a politician whatever base of authority or activism you may have disappears because now you are representing the machinery of government not not the you know you're you're not treated the same way as mayor when you're an activist and that's just the way it is so any of you activists out there running for office go for it i'm all for it but just understand it, it's a different environment once you're in. It's,
0: it's a very different environment. You are a manager running a very big business for the people. You are not an activist on the outside. Um, beholding to whoever your constituents are, but it's a, it's a very different ballgame.
1: I tried to be as activist a mayor as I could, and that was and, challenging. And, that and, was yeah. challenging, but it was fun too. Hey, Chuck, we've been like having too much fun talking like we always do. And, but at, at some point, we actually have to end this thing. So, I got two questions. I have one question for you, and then we're going to close. Okay. The question is Shoot. What would you tell, what would you say to a young person who says, Wow, that, what an awesome job this guy had? He got to be an advocate for bicycling, which makes cities better and more fun and good for the environment. I would love to find a career like that. What would you tell somebody like that?
0: I guess first and foremost, it, it's um, try to find a few things that you're passionate about or at least today you're passionate about, our passions change over time, and volunteer somewhere with a group. Don't sit at home on the computer doing a blog or whatever, but get involved with people who have the passion that you have, because people's where, it's at. People's where the movement happens. And they will encourage you to go further than you might be comfortable with, and that's how you learn. They will encourage you to be part of a larger group one of the i saw a bumper sticker a couple of years ago and it said do it scared and part of this is doing it scared you know being on tv for the first time it's scary coming into <laughs> a radio station it's scary you know being up in front of you know 500 people at a breakfast where you're raising money it's scary asking, but if you don't do it
1: asking don't a friend get there. to asking a friend to join you in a cause is scary the first time you do and, it right
0: but when people say yes It gets easier and
1: easier. And you're going to get to people who say
0: no. You have to grow a little bit of a thick skin and you have to be able to to take no for an answer. They are not saying no to you. They are saying no to your issue. They are not rejecting you. I have many, believe it or not, good friends who oppose many of my issues, (laughs) including my family, my brothers. I love them dearly and they're good friends. But they say no to me on the issues, but not to me as a person. And I think you have to get over that and understand that. There are good people out there on all sides. Some of them we'd sometimes like to just kind of hit in the back of the head and say, what are you thinking? But you have to understand it's not about you. It's about the issues. And you've got to get out there. Just volunteer somewhere. It could be volunteering at, as a coach right. on, a, on a baseball team. And you get to meet people and what they're doing. And you get some leadership experience. Just get out there. It's, yeah. it's my, and, my
1: big issue. And when you're with other people, they, they can help you muster the courage to do hard things. Right. right. When you have friends okay. and with your other people. Right. It gives you it, it makes it a little easier and they can tell you how to do it. Right. So we close each show with a song chosen by the uh, guest and you chose a Phil Oak song. What's the song?
0: When I'm Gone, I believe is the title, although it might not be. <laughs>
1: I think it, I think it is. Okay. So we're gonna let it we're gonna let it roll out and you get to talk over it a little bit. Chuck, why'd you pick this song? What does it mean to okay. you?
0: Well, when I was in high school, uh, as I said, I grew up in very conservative rural Connecticut, lots of dairy farms, and the towns around us were uh, pretty much all uh, textile mills. Um, I never saw a person of color until I got in high school. I got a scholarship to a local high school, um, and when I was a sophomore, I started dating this woman who um, ended up, unbeknownst to me, was, was Jewish, and her family was kind of New York City exiles during the Red Scare, um, socialist, communist, whatever they were, um, or just left-leaning. And I I got a lot of education from that family as to what it was like to be Jewish in in our country, what it was like to be black in our country, what it was like to be poor in our country, what it was like to have a different political view in our country than the majority. And um, they introduced me to uh, Phil Oaks and other uh, arts, if you will, and just fell in love with it.
1: Chuck, thanks for coming on and joining us. And my
0: pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Won't be asked to do
1: my share when I'm gone, so I guess I'll have to do
0: it while I'm here.